As Miss Davis stepped into her new classroom, not a single student paid her any attention. She set her purse down on the desk in front and looked around. All the high school students were either on their cell phones or talking to one another. Not even one had so much as glanced in her direction, but it wasn't any different than what she'd expected. You'd think they'd show their new teacher at least a little bit of respect, she thought to herself while pulling the class roll from a yellow envelope. With a roll in one hand and a pen in the other, she cleared her throat and waited for her students to shift their attention to her. Most of the class turned to her direction, but a few remained occupied with their own tasks. Deciding not to put up with this, she slammed her fist and caused a loud bang to echo throughout the room. The remaining students jolted their heads up in shock and stared at the woman in front of the classroom. Sorry, I'm a few minutes late. I'm still not used to driving around here yet. Now that I seem to have everyone's attention, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Miss Davis, and I will be your replacement English teacher for the remainder of the year. She looked around the room as she spoke and noticed a few students had already gone back to looking at their phones. I just moved here from Haddonfield, Illinois, so I'm still trying to get used to the weather here in Florida. Luckily, I seem to have... Miss Davis stopped mid-sentence as a student's hand shot up into the air and immediately caught her attention. You have a question? She noticed that whatever she had said that piqued his interest, it had caused his face to light up with an almost unnerving excitement. You said you came from Haddonfield? And there it was. She hoped that for just one time when she taught a new class that someone would not ask about it. No matter how much she tried to hide it, someone always managed to find out. Yet, here she was, letting it slip off her tongue like a fool. She swore to herself for not being more cautious. That's exactly what I said. With this, a majority of the class started whispering and glancing to each other with wide eyes. Miss Davis cleared her throat, and the room went silent once more. <clears throat> I take it some of you are familiar with what happened. A few students nodded, and the boy raised his hand again. Were you there? This caused the boys in the class to break out in contagious laughter while the girls glared at him. Everyone, please quiet down. To answer your question, uh, John, he said in a slightly hushed tone. To answer your question, John, I wasn't there that night. I don't know what my outward appearance says, but I'm a little far off from being born before the Haddonfield incident. John shrank back in his seat with embarrassment while the other boys attempted to keep their laughter under control. However... My mother was. This caused more chatter among the class, which quickly died down as Miss Davis began to glare around the room. What did she see? A girl asked with an obvious amount of excitement in her voice. I'm sorry, but I don't feel that's an appropriate discussion to be having. A cacophony of groans echoed throughout the room before the last word even left her mouth. 
The students that she was barely holding the attention of went back to their phones, and a few others donned a look of disappointment. Every time Miss Davis's students found out about her being from Haddonfield, they were always met with the same answer. The faculty wouldn't want me talking about this, or it's not something I want to discuss. I'm sorry, I really am, but this is hardly something I should be discussing with students. Now, if you want to know more about this, there are plenty of videos and news articles online. With that, she turned to the chalkboard and opened a textbook. As she began writing the chapter title in flowing cursive, she heard the student mutter something under his breath. <laughs> She's full of shit, probably playing it up for attention anyway. In the middle of writing out a word, she stopped. The sound of students writing in their notebooks ceased, and the room became deathly quiet. Excuse me. Miss Davis turned her head sharply and glared in the direction she heard the boy speak from. In a fraction of a second, her outer composure completely shifted as she glared at the boy sitting in the third row. It was not hard to pull him apart from the crowd. His eyes were wide with fright and the ink pen trembled in his hand. Was it you that said that? The boy quickly shook his head from side to side. No, no ma'am. Miss Davis slammed the book shut in her hand and laid it down on her desk. Slowly, she walked in his direction. Everyone's breath hung in their throats as her tall, thin figure inched closer to the boy. As she stood over his desk, she could see his hands begin to shake even more and sweat gather on his forehead. For God's sake, if you're going to speak about someone behind their back, at least have the common decency to admit it when you're confronted. He hung his head down in shame and refused to make eye contact with Miss Davis again. She stood in front of him for a few more seconds when an idea came to her mind. Turning and walking back to the front of the classroom, she stood in front of her computer. Entering her login information, she opened the internet browser and scrolled through a list of searched results. Once satisfied, she turned on the projector and switched off the lights. The classroom was thrust into darkness, save for small slivers of light making their way through the gaps in the blinds. Miss Davis sat down on the edge of her desk and faced the students. Suddenly, the projector finished warming up, and the room was filled with a flash of light. After everyone's eyes adjusted, they could see a newspaper article projected on the chalkboard. Miss Davis's form blocked part of the bottom of the image, but they could still make out the headline. Three Dead in Halloween Night Murders So, you think I'm full of shit. Well then, I guess it's time to clear some things up about what happened in Haddonfield in the wake of these murders. A girl in the front row raised her hand. All it took was one look for Miss Davis to recognize her as the overachiever of the class. She had no doubt that in the coming days the girl would do nothing but ask questions to make herself seem smart and kiss ass every opportunity she got. Before she could even call on her, the girl began talking. 
I don't think the principal would be too pleased to hear about your language. I also don't think he would like you discussing such an inappropriate topic in the classroom. Miss Davis smiled and gathered her thoughts for a moment. What's your name, darling? Annie. Well, Annie, do you know why I'm sitting here right now? Annie shook her head from side to side. For once, she didn't know the answer to a question asked in class. I'm sitting here because I was the only applicant to fill this position. All the other substitutes that are on file here weren't up for taking the job. It's the middle of September, so it's almost as if they'd taken the role of teaching the entire school year. It's never easy to find a permanent replacement when a teacher passes, but Principal Curtis was lucky enough that I applied. Annie was continuing to sit at full attention while Miss Davis spoke. The other students either had their eyes on her or the teacher. Either way, not a soul in the room was distracted. So, to answer your statement about him not liking our discussion or my language, he really doesn't have a choice. There's no one to replace me. Now, are you going to sit there like the rest of the class and listen to what I have to say, or go to the front office and file a complaint about me. Annie's lower lip quivered. She dared not to speak another word. That's what I thought. Miss Davis turned her gaze away from her and back over to the class. She scanned their faces and noticed that not even one had a trace of boredom. Like I was saying, I'm going to clear some things up about the aftermath in Haddonfield. First, we need to discuss what happened. The classroom tensed up. On Halloween night in 1978, three teenagers were brutally murdered on the street where my mother grew up. She considers it a blessing every day that her home wasn't the one targeted. Unfortunately, the people living a couple doors down weren't so lucky. Their daughter and her boyfriend were found in their house. There was one other victim found strangled in her car. After those three were killed, another person almost perished that night. Her name is Lori Strode, and she's the only one to survive an attack by this man. Miss Davis leaned over and scrolled the wheel on her mouse. The page moved down and the image of a white novelty mask filled the screen. Michael Myers. She felt the words struggle to come out of her mouth. Just saying them made a bitter taste appear in the back of her throat. Who can tell me something about Michael Myers? She asked while looking at her students. No one said a word. Everyone's eyes were glued to the screen in intense fascination. The almost sickly white glow of the projector illuminated their faces, exposing every detail. The only sound that could be heard was the wind faintly blowing against the windows outside. A boy in the second row slowly raised his hand. I remember seeing him at a show on Investigation Discovery. They said that Lori was actually his sister. Miss Davis pinched the bridge of her nose and let out a slow breath. This is why so much needs to be cleared up. She repositioned herself on the desk and crossed her legs. Why do you think we, as human beings, have such a fascination with something like this? 
What makes a man, if you can classify him as one, like Michael Myers, so appealing to us? Although the classroom remained quiet at first, a girl in the front row eventually spoke. I think it's because we all have some amount of interest in disturbing things like this. None of us want to admit it, but it's true. Miss Davis rested her head in the palm of her hand while pondering what the girl had just said. That's a good answer. What's your name? Linda? The girl said in a shy tone. Then tell me, Linda, if we all have at least a mild form of interest in disturbing and gruesome acts, then why were the Haddonfield crimes so exaggerated? One would think that a monster like Michael Myers would be enough to satisfy that craving. Sadly, that could be no further from the truth. Miss Davis leaned over to the computer once more and scrolled down a couple of pages. She stopped on an image of a tablet cover. The title stood out in an obnoxiously yellow font. Lone Survivor Shares Blood with Killer This, this right here, is the root of all the misconceptions you and the public have with the Haddonfield murders. One would think that such a story would be enough to shake anyone to their core, but for some reason, people felt the need to make up lies. They started out small at first, but grew and became uncontrollable. My mother said there was one instance where she was waiting in line to check out at the grocery store. On a rack of tabloids and other garbage magazines was a badly edited photograph of Michael Myers filing away at his prison bars with a nail file. Although I was not born yet on the night of the murders, my mother can still recall it in vivid detail. What made Michael's killing spree truly horrifying to her and everyone else in town was that no one thought something like this could have ever happened in their own backyard. For the rest of the country, they saw nothing more than a white mask with a news caption underneath it, where others saw a casual conversation topic, the people of Haddonfield. They saw the face of pure evil. This is what the problem with all this misinformation boils down to. If someone wasn't physically there, something had to be exaggerated to really grab their attention. Every student was staring at Miss Davis either out of respect or a silent means of hiding their discomfort. My mother refused to talk about that night with me until I was about 13. Up until that point, I was just like the rest of you. I thought Michael Myers was nothing more than a face used to sell less-than-reputable stories. It wasn't until my mother told me every detail that I truly understood what lurked behind the black eyes of that mask. When the people discovered the bodies, it seemed that the whole neighborhood, my mother included, turned up to watch from the sidelines. Most of the people lining the sidewalk were still wearing Halloween costumes. As the first boy was taken from the house on a gurney with a sheet draped over it, the crowd began to realize the weight of what had actually happened. All voices were hushed as the night air was filled with the sound of wind and tumbling leaves. One by one, the bodies were pulled from the house. Gradually, local news vans swarmed the area. 
By this time, my mother and her friends had returned home. It wasn't until later in the night that they captured Michael Myers. Apparently, he had been shot by a psychiatrist while attempting to flee. As two police officers took the injured man toward a police car, he was approached by a cameraman of a smaller news station. My mother said that when he approached the officers, he asked them to take Michael's mask off. To this day, she still can remember what happened next with vivid detail. One of the officers grabbed onto the top of the mask and slowly lifted it off. What the cameraman saw next was the face of no man but living proof that Satan himself walks this earth. My mother recalled to him looking like any other man you might see walking down the street. It wasn't until she looked at his eyes that she realized what Michael really was. Burning deep inside those seemingly empty eyes was something she can still only describe as pure evil. Now to some of you, that sounds like a cliché, but I want you all to stop and think for a moment. Close your eyes and try to imagine this. Think about what it must be like for a person to be purely evil. I'm not talking about cruel intentions or a complete lack of remorse and no compassion for human life. Imagine what a person must be like to see a human being as nothing more than a tally to add to the scoreboard. Miss Davis scrolled the computer screen once more until an image of a man flashed on the screen. He stared into the camera with a blank expression. Many of you know Michael Myers as a man in a mask from all those TV shows, but very few, if any of all, have actually seen what he truly looks like. Trying to sell a human face as evil didn't work as well as the mask. To this day, the people of Haddonfield still fear that face. Although some fear it more than others, it seems that everyone understands what feasted on the innocence of their town all those years ago. She scrolled the screen to the bottom of the webpage. The last article was dated as being published a couple of years after the murders. This was the last article that any of those magazines published about Michael. It was almost as if by the following week, the world had forgotten about him. He was now in prison, and the country moved on to the next sickening story that satisfied their hunger for disgust. However, the nightmare wasn't over for Haddonfield. Everyone in town knew that Michael was in prison, but that hardly did anything to settle their nerves. He had broken out once, so the fear that he would do it again lingered over the town. To this day, some residents still fear that he will return. This is the difference between Haddonfield and the rest of the country. Everyone else got their sick kicks watching news stories about him, while Haddonfield lived in his shadow for years to come. When I was growing up, the fear of Michael Myers had dwindled some, but still had a strong presence over our town. No one took enjoyment from hearing his name or reading about his killings. Parents set strict curfews for their children. 
They acted as if Michael could easily appear from anywhere and unleash hell upon the town once more. None of you can know what it's like to grow up in fear of something so evil that just the sheer mention of his name would send a chill down your spine and make your stomach churn. It was always that lingering feeling that someone was following you or that someone was watching through your bedroom window. This wasn't like being afraid of a monster in your closet. In our case, the monster had walked the streets and you could still see the footprints. To the rest of the country, Michael was just a face. To Haddonfield, he was a horrific evil who still cast a shadow over the town. Sadly, the media couldn't exactly sell our view of what he really was. So instead, they turned him into a gimmick until there was hardly any truth to his story. With time, I've learned that an exaggerated lie sells better than the plain truth. Miss Davis stopped and studied the class. Some girls had shrunk back in their seat while others were nervously glancing around. Even some of the boys seemed to be on edge. The discussion had begun with the class listening eagerly, but slowly devolved into an understanding of true evil. Some had handled it better than others, but even the strongest had been broken. This is why I don't talk about Haddonfield around other people. They see Michael Myers as nothing more than a novelty meant to fill late-night time slots and be a brief discussion topic over drinks. To us, he still walks the streets of our little town. He still watches people through their windows at night. He still waits in the shadows to claim his next victim. She scrolled back to the image of an unmasked Michael Myers and zoomed in on his eyes until they filled the screen. When the Haddonfield Sheriff was interviewed about that night, he talked about his discussions with the psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis. According to him, Dr. Loomis had stated that in all the years he'd observed Michael, he was never really looking at him. Instead, Michael was looking past everything, looking at that night in 1978. Miss Davis glanced back at the screen. Even after all these years, the sight of his gaze managed to fill her with an unsettling sense of dread. My mother's told me numerous times over the years that what she saw in his eyes that night on the television. At that moment, Michael wasn't looking into the camera. He was looking past that, and what he saw was another night. The night he would return to Haddonfield. A single tear escaped her eye and rolled down her cheek. She quickly wiped it back with the back of her sleeve before turning to the class. In some ways, though, it's almost as if he never left. Really quick, before we get into the next story, I have to ask, since that first story was more or less an homage, if you will, to the Halloween movie, obviously, when do you think it's time to start preparing for spooky season. Because me personally, I think it's totally fine to start in August. I mean, after August, there's September, and then before you know it, it's October, and there's pumpkins and orange leaves and everything. It's incredible. I love 
love that time of year. It's also when my birthday is, but anyway, when do you think it's the perfect time to start celebrating Halloween or just the spooky season in general? And what did you think of that story? Let me do it out in the comment section below. And while you're thinking about it, take a listen to our next story. Blake Gardner awoke to an oppressive, physical darkness. It embraced him. As the cold shadows flowed around him, he felt himself falling, slowly but surely. He tried to reach out, to flail and to grasp, but only pain greeted him. Something bit into his wrists like fiery needles. His hands found each other fast and they clasped together with interlocked fingers. They'd been bound behind his back. When he tried his feet, not only did he find the same intrusion of pain, but there was a weight there, a tension that dangled below his legs that dragged him along. As were his hands, so had his legs been bound, and something was pulling him deeper, farther into the dark. After a few seconds, a pressure came upon him. He felt it around his eyes and deep in his sinuses. The shadows had become overwhelming and heavy, aggressive. The further along he went, the greater the weight of the blackness. Every time he moved, he heard the darkness move too. It was a physical presence. He felt himself push through it. It felt familiar, very familiar. He felt something in his mouth plastic and malleable. He breathed through it, and a stagnant air filled his lungs. When he released it, he felt the air move out of the sides of his mouth. It was then he had the sudden, sinking realization. His predicament finally made horrible sense. The air was released from the sides of his mouth, and it formed bubbles that fizzed in the darkness around him. He heard them and felt them against his face as they floated away. Some of the pressure left his face. The air that escaped paved the way to his terrible understanding. Some of the darkness seeped in through the corners of his mouth. Its salty, gritty texture filled his dried mouth. The taste reaffirmed his worst nightmare. No, he thought. No, no, this cannot be. No. He tried to scream just moments before he reached his silt-covered destination. No one would hear him, for he was alone. Alone, bound, and trapped on the ocean floor. The panic that beset him was unlike any he'd ever known before, and again he started fighting his restraint. A useless gesture. He tossed and turned like a fish at the end of a long line. He stood no chance of escaping. The ropes that bound him were far too tight and thick for that. After several minutes, Blake felt a terrible exhaustion set in. The water chilled him. The only warmth came from the failing adrenaline surging within his shivering veins. The salt stung at his chest with needles and pens, a shocking and unwelcome pain. 
He stared into the dark. He was mortified by the almost perfect darkness before him. In the night and at his depth, he was positive his visibility was no more than a few inches in front of his face. Yet he knew that he could see. His eyes and nose, for that matter, were both dry. They were covered. Someone had given him a mask to see through. But why? He could see nothing. Nothing. And beyond that nothing, the shadows swirled thick and devious, concealing everything from the smallest plankton to the largest predator. His breathing accelerated as his mind kindly illuminated the shadows beyond. He saw sharks, hundreds of them circling, their eyes as black as the water, their teeth shining in a bloody white radiance. They all smiled at him. They'd been given such a lovely present. That was what he was, wasn't it? A gift to anything and everything that lurked below. The only thing he was missing was a pretty little bow. And he'd be alive to feel it. Whoever had damned him here made sure of that. What cruel bastards sends a man to the deep while he's asleep? What had happened? His memory was a jigsaw shoved onto the floor, scattered and unorganized. His mind tried to repair it, but the pieces wouldn't fit. In his current state, the reconstruction of said puzzle looked incredibly unlikely. There was something about a party, a bar. A current ran across the small of his naked back like a giant centipede. Imaginary or not, Blink turned, twisting his bonds, but the image before him remained the same. If anything had been there, he'd never have known. As he rolled to his left and then back to his right, nothing changed. The static image of nothingness held his focus tight like a vice. They continued to do so until he looked up. The appearance of some light, any light at all, should have helped alleviate his fears, but instead it felt as though his heart had shriveled up and died within his chest. The moon watched him from overhead, too far away to offer any help. Its light was dulled and blurred by the surface, a surface which must have sat at least seventy feet away. A swimmable distance. A good distance for any diver who wasn't bound at the bottom of the sea. It could be worse, his mind decided to say. Yet, the temptation of the waves above and the soothing light of the moon offered him no hope. They merely mocked him with a release he couldn't have. Before his eyes, the moon was swallowed by the dark. Blake grasped fast for the rope below. Holding it tight, he pulled and thrashed until his back was brought to bear against the hard concrete block that had sunk him. His heart raced as his eyes strained in suffocating black. Something somewhere above had just crossed between him and the only light he had left. Something big, and he could not see it. He could only wait for it to take him. Seconds passed, and the moon hadn't returned. Minutes passed, 
he was still alive. His grip relaxed. Cautious, he was very cautious. He felt himself rise, held buoyant by the breath in his lungs. In the depths, it wasn't just his eyes that failed him. All his senses had seemingly abandoned him to his fate. His hearing was useless. The ones who had damned him to the deep had placed earplugs in his ear. And though they surely saved his eardrums from rupturing under the water pressure, the only sounds that came through them were harsh and static. All the ocean offered him was a droning white noise. Down there in the deep, the only sense he had unhampered was his touch. But that could only help him so much. He was a prisoner in an unaccessible hell. It took about five minutes, an unspeakable amount of time for Blake, before light would reappear in the waters above. In that time, Blake, fueled by his fear of the suffocating unknown, had been feeling around his restraints. He reaffirmed what he already knew. Rope had bound him at the wrist and at his ankles. He followed the line beneath his ankles and felt about the cinder block that had pulled him down. The rope wrapped around it many times. Each strand was as thick as his thumb and he couldn't find any knot. It was surely on the other side of the block, suffocated in the thick mud below. He couldn't untie it. The idea of his pocket knife came to mind. He should have had it on him. He never went anywhere without it. It was a good, hopeful idea for a few seconds. When he reached upward for his shorts, he was met with only the touch of his own skin. His chin came to his chest as if he could see himself. His chin rubbed against his raw collarbone, and Blake found he was also without a shirt. He was naked. Completely exposed and naked. They'd stripped him of not only his freedom and his understanding, but of his goddamn clothes as well. His knife surely sat comfortably with his clothes far away from him, above the surface. He cursed in an explosion of air and fury that had taken over from the bone-numbing fear he'd felt moments before. It was a feeling that any man who had hope torn from his chest so quickly after finding it knows all too well. In the darkness, however, it was a fleeting feeling. The cold that crept along his skin made itself known once more. It begged for Blake's attention. Or was he before? His mind wandered back to the jigsaw puzzle and had found some of the pieces unturned. A bar downtown L.A. That was it. His last memories of freedom and they were spent in a drunken haze. Just a typical Friday night. Not exactly respectable, but not worth his situation, surely. What could he have done to elicit his fate? An alley. He flipped a jigsaw piece in his head. There'd been a woman there. She called to him. Beautiful woman. Blonde, green eyes. What happened then? Another piece flipped. 
She wasn't alone, was she? Another piece. She'd offered him a drink earlier. Something was in it. The puzzle turning stopped. For the first time in what felt like a lifetime, something above caught his eye. As if granted by a cruel god, a green light descended from the surface. It caught his eye early, and he followed it as it sunk beside him. It fell gracefully, almost perfectly through the water. In a slow drop, it settled nicely in the silt below. Blake saw pieces of the sediment rise around the light in a thin cloud as the dim LED glow stick touched the ocean floor. His only company, the light, had landed just beyond his grasp. He tried, of course, but he found the weight that tethered him to the bottom was too great to move. So the light remained nearby, but unusable. He tried to hover close to its glow. It showed him the smooth silt of the bottom for the first time. The vaguest silhouette of his face mask had appeared around his sight, and when he looked down, he could see the outline of his chest. More importantly, he could see that in the yard or so between him and the light, he was perfectly alone. He smiled until he realized the light in front of him had somehow increased the eeriness of the wall of black behind him. He could feel it sticking to his skin like a giant spider's web. Its caress was unwelcome. He thrashed around, struggling to pull the block closer to the light, but he accomplished nothing. More motion attracted his gaze from above. There were more glow sticks. Three more descended from the surface. He saw two of them enter the water from above, near where the moon had been. They illuminated the faintest shape of the object that sat above his head. A boat. Was it help? Were the lights there to pave a way for a dive team? The idea was sweet as it rolled in his head, but it seemed so unlikely. The stinging on his chest brought the pessimist back to the surface. It was his captors above. They were dropping the lights to be cruel, nothing more. As they settled, he noticed that the pattern hadn't been random. The lights all landed around him in a perfectly semi-circular formation. He noticed each one had fishing line wrapped around their middle. They hadn't sunk. They'd been lowered. But why? The prickling feeling on his chest got worse. The light around him had grown helpful. Blake could see himself, for the most part, in their sickly green glow. It was both reassuring and disheartening to see the seafloor around him. He was thankful to see the silt free of crabs or other aquatic nightmares. The idea of something crawling up the ropes and onto him made him shiver. However, to see that only algae spotted the bottom was crushing. There was nothing, no seashell, no shark tooth, nothing that Blake could have possibly used to cut himself free. His head drooped in frustration. There's something on his chest. There's something on his chest. No, not on. Something was in his chest. Cut into. Someone had cut 
all over his chest, and the cuts were purposeful in their direction and design. They'd cut shapes, symbols into his chest. Blake had spent his whole life in L.A., a city boy through and through, but he knew a brand when he saw one. He had been branded. To Blake, it felt more than a physical injury. It was a violation upon him, a desecration. His gut churned and his fingernails bit into the palms of his hands with a furious persistence. Another glow stick fell from the surface. Another glow stick fell from the surface. The glow stick, the final light, fell opposite of the semicircular formation behind them. Its light was unguided. As it sank, it twirled at the water's mercy. It fell until it was just above him. It fell until it was almost an arm's reach away from his face. It fell towards his feet. And then Blake watched as it sank past the ocean floor. It was with horror that Blake followed the light's descent. He merely had to lean forward to watch as the light carved its way farther and farther into darkness. He watched, eyes wide, as the light slipped so far into darkness it had become a memory, faded and dull. As it sank, it had revealed to Blake everything. It had shown him the solid wall of sand and rock it had passed as it sunk. The same wall that Blake sat atop of. It showed him a depth without end. The light had shown Blake that he was only mere feet away from the oceanic drop-off. The trench before him was hidden once more in shadow so perfectly that Blake started to wonder if he'd hallucinated it. His heart knew he hadn't. He'd been dropped perfectly at the edge of certain death and the light was his captors intentionally showing him. From the surface, they played a cruel game with Blake. A tear caught at the bottom of his face mask. He wasn't sure if missing the trench had been a blessing or a curse. If he'd gone over, if it was even half as deep as he thought, then the pressure would surely kill him. If not, then the sudden descent would have played havoc with his blood. Blake wasn't a seafaring man, but he wasn't a moron. He knew what the pressures of the deep oceans could do, and the creatures that lived down there were far more frightening than any shark. The thought of it, one of those creatures rising, made him recoil further. His back came to rest again at the slime of the ocean floor. He lay in the comfortable circle of light. Up there, at the edge of oblivion, he was condemned to wait. Death could come at any time. Blake was sure of that. That was the worst of it. The waiting. Blake considered, if only for a moment, pushing himself out of the edge. He would die, painfully, but it would be faster. It would also be on his own terms. The idea of control gave him some satisfaction, but how would he move the weight? Last he tried, it had been impossible, and who's to say the depth was far enough to kill him? What if he landed at the perfect place between agony and death? It was too risky. He could have chosen to stop breathing. No. He could have made it even easier than that. He could have just spit out his regulator. 
That would have been more peaceful, less painful. Either way, Blake decided it was far preferable to die as he wanted than to die as the bastards above wanted him to. He just needed to gather the courage. The courage ran in short supply as the lost light began to emerge from the dark. Blake had risen to a floating position again when in his peripherals he saw the faint glimmer beyond the edge of the trench. He avoided it. Surely it wasn't real. It was his mind, his panic. If he ignored it, he'd suffer no consequence. Yet the light persisted. And soon the glow became unmistakable. The shimmer called to Blake from just past the edge, in the deep. Blake looked. The light was rising. Against all logic and insanity, the lost light had begun to ascend in the frigid waters. It showed Blake something awful. Below its light, the shadowed waters seemed to breathe and stir. In the periphery of his rising green light, shades changed as something rose from the depths. It was a sickening realization that came when he saw the shadows had wrapped themselves around the middle of the glow stick. The light was rising because something was carrying it. Blake's view was again obscured by bubbles and darkness as he retreated from the abyssal edge. In quick, pathetic motions, he tried to pull himself away from the rising terror. He felt the prickly sand press up against his back as he wrestled futilely with his restraints. Unfortunately, he had neither the strength nor the energy to break the vacuous hold the sediment had upon its block. He could do little more than yell through his regulators. The light peaked. Blake could see it now. As the light stopped its vertical ascent, a disturbing scene greeted him. He would have given anything to return to the darkness as a figure clambered up and over the ledge. It stood directly before him on two naked legs. Their eyes met. The sight before him was unimaginable. The light had been carried up by a man. No, not a man. A corpse. The light showed enough to confirm that. The man's bare skin had grown ragged and gray, waterlogged by untold months beneath the waves. Some sections of flesh had long since given way, surrendered to the sea, revealing the fetid muscles underneath. Blake gagged when he noticed that tiny tendrils of tattered skin dangled off into the distance. Sights upon the man's body were. The denizens of the ocean had begun to pick him apart and eat piece by piece. Rigor mortis had a tight grip upon the man's pained, torture face. His eyes were as wide like his mouth, frozen in an internal, silent scream. He'd been dead for a long time, and yet his eyes still moved. They fixed themselves upon Blake. The monstrous vision held the light close to its face, and Blake couldn't help himself. He stared deeply into those clouded, grayed eyes. Blake could see thought behind its gaze. A soul sat within it. The corpse leaned closer, brought by an unseen current, perhaps, towards Blake. 
extending its free arm in a rigid, almost robotic fashion and began to examine him. It seemed inquisitive, like a man examining vegetables at a supermarket. It was morbid in the way it moved. When in motion, the limbs and muscles of the figure seemed healthy, alive, yet every time the motion stopped, the body resumed a state of incredible rigidity. Caught in a constant state of flux, the man who appeared both living and dead. Blake, petrified before this horror, saw as the corpse's eyes left his and fell upon his chest. Lowering its light, its other hand came forward and its waterlogged finger began to trace the patterns carved into Blake's chest as if it were following the streets on a map. Revolted at the creature's touch, Blake squirmed and twitched, but the corpse held no contempt. It followed his every motion with intense precision, seemingly satisfied. It lifted itself back. No, it was, it was pulled back. There was something behind the corpse. Like a pillar in the night, a shape had taken form behind the moving carcass. It rose out of sight above and below, and with every swaying motion the corpse made in the water, the pillar followed like an enormous shadow. The corpse danced at the pillar's will, a puppet to the puppeteer. Before he could grant it any further thought, his attention was called back to the corpse as it had brought the glow stick toward its own chest. It became deadly still in the water. It was waiting for Blake to see. It had to show him. The corpse showed Blake his chest and the familiar brand upon it. Blake was staring at the very same symbols that had been cut into his own chest. It wasn't an execution or some random cruel murder. He hadn't pissed off the wrong man. No, it was far worse and far more primal than that. It was a sacrifice. And Blake was the lamb. As Blake's eyes stretched wide, the corpse dropped the glow stick and it rose toward the surface. The pillar carried the figure into the shadows above. At that moment, Blake made the decision that whatever was to happen next was the worst case scenario. Everything else was preferable. He wouldn't be the lamb. He tried to spit out his regulator. Disgusting, salty water managed to creep into his mouth as he struggled, but even though his teeth and lips had parted from it, the regulator wouldn't fall from his mouth. Using his tongue, he tried to push it out, but it held fast to his face. He felt the pull of the regulator around his lips and on the back of his head. The bastards hadn't given him much choice. They had to tape the regulator to his face. He had to be alive for what came next. Through the murk, another corpse appeared. The pillar had brought up another degraded carcass from fathoms below. Blake floundered against the seafloor as the woman inched closer. She was younger than the man who'd come before, and her body showed fewer signs of decay. Behind her eyes, however, sat the same cold intelligence. That sentience watched him as she rose away into the dark, her visage fleeting. Blake saw that across her bare chest were etched the same symbols. Symbols of the damned. Another corpse came, 
this one horribly disfigured and mangled. There was more rot than man left on his bones, yet the eyes remained lively. His jaw dangled by only strands of sinew and his right arm had long since been torn asunder at the elbow. The white of the bones seemed to glimmer in the dull light. Despite the rot, the edges of the symbols were still visible on his white chest, and his left hand managed to hold on threateningly to an old rusted dagger. Like the others, the rotted man faded into the above. More bodies appeared as the endless pillar rose. They came one after the other. Each one bore a look of indescribable anguish and pain on their face, a look that they forever carried, enslaved by the alien pillar behind them. Around Blake, a storm of currents had begun to churn the sediment into a frenzy. What little light he had soon started to dirty as a swirling cloud threatened to drown it all out. The currents came from beyond the light. Things moved unseen out there in the dark. And they started to touch him. Like lightning, arms and hands long gone cold reached for him. Whenever his back was turned, they'd protect themselves from the darkness like a sunken jack-in-the-box. He'd feel their slime-covered fingers caress him. Their nails would jab and scratch him. And each and every time Blake turned around, he would see just enough. An arm sucked back into the void beyond his gaze. The cat toying with the mouse. A mouse with its back crushed in a trap. That's when she entered into the light. A horrid witch of a woman. Her skin had withered, and she seemed more bone now than flesh. The symbol on her chest had fallen away, and only the scars on her ribcage remained. Her sunken eyes glared harshly as she reached for his face, Blake screaming for help that would never come as the woman ensnared him in her decomposing fingers. She brought him in close, hugging him tightly as if they'd been friends with muscles Blake didn't even think she had. He could feel a touch on his neck as she exhaled water up from her lungs. Up close, Blake saw every horrible detail. The pillar was clear now, and it was obvious that it was alive. It was the dull, rotted color of the corpses, and it had the obvious texture of meat. From the woman flowed the strings of the puppeteer, veins and tentacles that had long ago forcibly invaded her body, fed directly into the enormous mass behind her. In the dimming light, Blake swore he saw them pulsate. They were pumping like the veins beneath his skin. He felt another liquid breath on his neck. Craning around, he saw that what he'd believed to be a pillar had wrapped around behind him. The first man he'd seen had emerged, and the pillar carried him away. The mass of flesh that had fused to his back lifted his body upward toward the surface. His eyes never left Blake. In the shadows, the pillar seemed to squirm and twist as it snaked its way up, thickening the further it went. As it positioned itself, Blake understood what it was that had risen from the trench. The pillar was actually an enormous tentacle. Like the suction cups of an octopus, the tentacle had used the woman's arms to hold Blake tight. Behind him, the tentacle had brought into position the ghastly, one-armed man Blake had seen earlier. The woman tightened her grip as she presented Blake to the one-armed man. Craning his neck, Blake saw the man fumble with the rusted dagger. He brought it sharply toward the bonds that held Blake's ankles so tight and he began to cut. 
He was reckless, imprecise as he sawed through the ropes. As the binds came loose, Blake grimaced as the knife continued to saw. The man had accidentally severed a slice of skin from the side of Blake's ankle. Blake felt his legs come apart from each other, and he let them spread into the water. He was free from the bottom. Free. In that instant, the fight started. He let loose with a fury and panic that the entire ordeal had granted him, but the corpse held tight. In fact, the more he struggled, the tighter her grasp got. The strength was far too great to resist, and soon, Blake started to feel his ribs bend and strain. He couldn't breathe, but he kept fighting. The whole time Blake fought, he saw her horrid gaze, unblinking, unfeeling, unyielding. Despite his thrashing, the puppet corpse behind him decided to proceed with the cutting. This time, it took aim at the bonds between Blake's wrists. As he did so, Blake had an idea. A risky, terrible idea. In acceptance of the fact, his legs stopped kicking. The woman released her grip just enough in kind, and Blake sucked in a huge breath of air. His eyes glared defiantly at the specter. He kept breathing, waiting. He had nothing to lose as he made his move. As soon as the dead man had finished cutting the binds and the precious moment the final strand had parted, Blake's palms closed around the rusted blade. They didn't let go. He wanted to scream as the blade dug into his palm, but he was beyond that now. His veins burned with pure determination. The one-armed man seemed not to possess the same strength as the woman had, for his grip on the knife was weak and feeble. No matter how hard the man behind him pulled, Blake would not release the blade. The woman's face never changed, but Blake saw a hatred grow in her eyes. With a terrible yank, they nearly ripped the meat from his palm and bloodied the water around him. Blake pulled the knife and the rest of the man's fingers free. Behind him, the top of the tentacle ran into the dark, carrying corpses along like a morbid roller coaster, but in front of him, the woman didn't retreat. She tightened her vice-like grip. Unfortunately for her, the grip was too high and she'd found the tank on his back. This provided Blake with ample room to bring his right hand forward and to plunge the blade deep into the woman's stomach. It scraped through her spine. Her grip failed just long enough and Blake pushed himself free. Blake decided he wasn't going to die. The woman tried to recapture Blake, but with the strength he shouldn't have had, Blake brought the blade through the water and into the left eye of the old woman. She didn't scream, but she clenched both eyes tight in pain. A thick, black goo seeped out from the wound and stuck to Blake's hand like ink. Her arms flailed about, so Blake ripped the knife from her face and he jammed it into the other eye. With that, she recoiled. Her hands came to her face to cover her wounds, and the tentacle fell completely away beyond the light. He was free. He knew his time was short. With the sliced right hand, Blake managed to find the glow stick the beast had dropped by his legs. He brought it to his face just in time to see the tentacle had not left him yet. Another body, a large, overweight man, was soon upon him. His arms reached forth. Their target was Blake's throat. Blake jabbed at the body with the rusted blade and retreated fast. Blake enjoyed that. The threat of pain, injury, didn't sit well with the monster. That gave Blake a much-needed edge. Blake knew he couldn't hesitate any further. With a great kick against the block that had imprisoned him, he propelled himself toward the surface, to freedom, to air. He knew at that moment he would survive. Even as the nitrogen started to boil in his blood and as the salt seeped into his fresh wounds, Blake could only think of one thing. 
the surface breaking around his head, the chilly night sky biting into his scalp, the calming sight of the night sky. The watchful stars would be there and they would see his final triumph. It would be beautiful. As his body began to betray him, he forced himself through. He knew the tentacle pursued from below. He could feel it. A presence in the water all around him. Hungry, ravenous eyes followed him from below, but he didn't care. He couldn't afford to. His hand was cramping. He found his grip morphing around the light and the knife. He could only hold on to one. So he made a choice. As the knife sunk, Blake grabbed onto the glow stick with both hands. They clung to it like it was a lifeline. The surface was coming. How close it should have been. Surely only 30 feet. 20, 10. The stars. He should have seen the stars. Instead, only a pained, angry face met his gaze. Blake nearly collided with the corpse that had ambushed him out of the dark. He brought his feet to the corpse's chest and kicked hard against it. He felt the thing's rib collapse beneath his feet. He circled to his right and tried to rise again. He would make it. He knew he could do it. He found another body. The woman was missing half her face, but she reached for him regardless. He dove down as she grasped for his legs. He just barely slipped by. Out of nowhere, a hand reached for his face. His momentum carried him past the man and too close to the tentacle. He flipped around and shot far away. A small amount of water invaded his goggles, and the bends began to stab at his muscles. He could do it. Again, he was ambushed. It shouldn't have been possible. The tentacle was everywhere. It was fast. How was it so fast? And the light showed him the truth. He retreated into the light's periphery, for in its center a body was reaching for him, a devious smile on its face. To his right, the light revealed another one with twisted fingers and an exposed jaw-like ribcage. The bodies floated side by side in the water, their arms extended at length. Blake had no choice. He rose, and yet even there, more bodies sat waiting in ambush. The same happened as he swam backwards, too. The bodies all formed a thick wall of nightmares around him. They were too close. One of the bodies struck Blake hard in the ribs in passing, and in a pain that was finally too overwhelming, he dropped the light. Greedy arms took their chance and assaulted him as the light fell. As it sank, it illuminated the inside of what had become a solid wall of flesh. A swirling maelstrom decorated with death had completely surrounded him. There wasn't just one tentacle. There were dozens, and they'd contained him inside of a giant sphere. His arms and legs were free, but Blake had never felt more trapped. The tentacles swirled. They kept him from the stars. Through his earplugs, he heard a chorus of screams grow from nothing to overtake the white noise. They came from all around him, escaping out of the throats of the long-since-deceased. Their faces contorted as the ghoulish melody echoed through the waves. It was a tune of pure mockery and triumph. The song of Blake's defeat. He couldn't do it. He never could have. Blake began to sink. His muscles stopped working. The pain of the bends was too great for his brain to ignore. 
He burned inside as the tentacles began to constrict their net. He was only vaguely aware as many more pairs of arms began to claw at him and hold him tightly in submission. The corpses never blinked. Behind his eyes, Blake was screaming. Not from the pain. He screamed in defiance. He screamed against the cruel irony that had perverted his escape. He saw the light at the bottom of the writhing mass of tentacles. Blake watched as the tentacles parted, allowing the light to fall beyond his reach, beyond his sight. The tentacle closed again, and the light died. Blake was in the pitch black, alone with the dead. He couldn't see it, but they started to smile. He felt it when the arms tore the goggles from his face. Not that they mattered anymore. The darkness persisted. Only the pain was new. The water assaulted his eyes and forced it way up his nose. The salt burned everything that it touched. He only managed to suck in half a breath as they removed the regulator from his face. The breath was spoiled as water was quick to invade his lungs. Blake sputtered and spat, but all that did was expel the last bit of air he had from his lungs. As they tore the tank from his back, Blake was drowning. He wouldn't drown fast enough. Though he couldn't see it, the tentacles positioned him strategically. They moved him up against a large, slimy section of barren flesh. Blake's head felt as though it would explode, and that was before the spines entered his body. Once inside, numerous barbed tentacles searched and dug their way into his veins. He felt a warm burning as an alien substance seeped its way in. Eventually, all of his blood would be lost to the sea, and only the thick blood of the monster would remain. As his head grew dizzy, tiny tendrils dug their way into his spine. The pain was sharp, unbearable, as they coiled about his central nervous system like hungry pythons. Blake tried to scream, but there was no air left to give. No sound escaped his curled lips. He'd hoped for comfort in death, but as the nerves of the beast found hold inside of him, he found true hell. His mind became one with the others, left in darkness. Death never found Blake. The weight of the water filled his chest, and the sounds of the damned filled his ears. He heard their screams, hundreds of screams. He felt their pain, hundreds of lost souls sacrificed, and they were all connected. He heard their pleas. Help me. Anyone, please. I'm drowning. I'm drowning. Why am I underwater? Who's there? Is anyone? I want my mom. He felt his lips forced into a smile, but he was anything but happy. He was left with one choice. The last option he could physically achieve. He called for help. No one would answer him, of course, for his pain was their pain. His fate was there. As they sunk into the abyss, one alien voice was forced into his mind. All is one here in the colony. From their position near the sea floor, beyond the ring of light, the two divers had watched as Blake made for the surface. They both knew better to interfere, so they'd waited patiently. 
There was no reason to chase after him. The colony had never allowed Indian to escape before. The situation, unseen above, was surely well in hand. The blonde-haired diver watched as the lost light sank in front of her. She smiled as it was settled. It was done. Moments after, a tentacle had crept into their circle. The blonde-haired woman watched as an elderly man was brought forth. Carried between his arms was an old wooden chest. The other diver took the chest gently and allowed it to sink to the ocean floor. With his partner's help, they opened up the chest. The contents were much to their liking. They closed the chest and prepared to make their ascent. However, before they went, the tentacles surrounded them in a similar fashion to how they'd surrounded Blake. The divers held themselves unnaturally calm as the dead surrounded them, including the recently deceased Blake Gardner. The tentacles seemed to bring him to showcase at the front of the circle. Using his muscles, they forced Blake's right hand and outward, and they extended his fingers up. They made his body wave goodbye before they pulled him into the unknown. This didn't affect the divers at all. Two more bodies were brought to display. They noted the one-armed man who'd lost all but one of his fingers, and the blinded woman. In a sickening motion, the one-armed man's body peeled away from the tentacles. The tendrils retracted from his corpse, and the flesh peeled from around its back. His body was dropped to the floor below, discarded. The man squirmed, but for a moment... They always did that. The woman had often been told it was just a reflex, like a decapitated chicken when it runs around. She had other theories, though. She wondered if just for a moment the poor souls got control of their bodies back before they became still forever. She honestly didn't care either way. The woman was next. She was useless to the tentacles if she could not see, so... She, too, was abandoned. She settled rather calmly into her sandy grave. As the tentacles left, one final body was brought to the light. On it, a young man, no older than twenty, presented his right hand clenched into a fist. On it, he raised two fingers toward the divers. The senior diver nodded and held up two of his own in acknowledgement. With that, the young man smiled and the creature disappeared into the trench. The divers packed up. Two more bodies. They had work to do.